Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with a friend in industry peer, Tulin Sebjin from UpGuard, and we talked about the risks associated with third-party vendors. Tulin talks through risk mitigation strategies that organizations can take. She sheds light on a few examples of when things have gone wrong and her experience and how companies have managed to overcome the incident and preserve the relationship not only with the client, but also the vendor. If you're keen to learn more about Tulin's thoughts, then this episode is for you, so please keep on listening. Okay, so this has been a long time coming podcast and it's weird because I keep saying it to like every guest that we have on here saying I, I've been really wanting to get you on as a guest on the podcast. Yeah. And I know that you and I have spoken about so many times and I think what's really important about the work that you do is I think there's not enough focus on it. And you all, you all know that I'm very uh, particular when it comes to risk and compliance. So I thought what the best guest to go on would be yourself, Tulin. So welcome. I'm really excited to have this chat with you ultimately because, yes, you are a good friend of mine, but because you're a very knowledgeable uh, professional practitioner as well. So I'm really keen to get started. So before we get started on your knowledge about risk management, can we talk a little bit more about your journey, like where you sort of started to what you're doing now? Yeah, of course. So uh, thanks for having me for starters. It has definitely been a long time coming. So I'm very excited that it's finally happening here for us. <laughs> um, basically, just to start with, uh, you know, my, my career, just probably like majority of other people started in a graduate program at one of the big four. And from there, it kind of opened my eyes to the different types of industries out there that you can work for, and the different types of services and the different types of careers that you can have. Because you know, at the big four, they've got different levels of services from accounting, finance, risk, security, the whole heap, right? So my first interest came from there in into security when I was kind of brought onto some really cool projects that we had done with government. Uh, so there were more social engineering style projects. And that's kind of where my love kind of started for security. Uh, from there, you know, I went in and out of, of security and tech from there. I went into high frequency trading um, did a couple of stints there in risk and also in IT and, and specifically focusing on, you know, IT risk because that's very important in high frequency trading because everything is automated and, you know, uh, done by computers and coding. So that was very, very interesting for me. I was there for a little while and from there I jumped into the big banks. So, you know, as you and I know, we've both worked at, at some of the big banks in Australia and, you know, it's it's not what it seems like from the outside most of the time. Uh, I think it really depends which teams you work in and what you're focusing on. But I was uh, in in IT risk there, in technology risk, and looking after specific uh, different parts of the bank. And I didn't really enjoy my time at either of the Aussie banks I was at. So I decided to kind of take a break and figure out what I wanted to do next. So I took a little bit of time off and then figured you know, I knew I knew this uh, this lovely man at at a small boutique consulting company, and thought, you know what, maybe you know he's been talking to me about starting up some security services as part of their consulting practice. So I thought I'd explore that option a little bit further, and then that's kind of how it all started for me again, uh, getting passionate and more interested in in security and technology again, and I I started up their security practice there, their consulting services. 
And then, you know, I, I found UpGuard, which is where I currently work, uh, and their products. And I thought, you know, these products are perfect and they would accompany my services that I've created as part of the consulting practice. So I, I've got them on board with us and and then they kind of poached me. So <laughs> it was quite interesting. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. So I'm at UpGuard and I lead up there third-party risk management, I look after all our managed services customers, um, the service that we offer and the product as well that we offer. So yeah, it's great. I love it. Mm-hmm. So before we jump into third-party vendors, because yeah. I know you're really keen to dive on deep into this, <laughs> uh, for a lot of people out there would know that we do co-present a lot of the time. I can't even count to you how many times we've been on the same panel, definitely more than once. Uh, and one of the things that I always have a giggle at is when they announce your your profile about your internal audit, external audit, there's another auditing function in there and I've probably forgotten it. So can you just sort of just give a bit of a synopsis on what you were sort of doing when it comes to the auditing side of things? Yeah, of course. So all the, the auditing stuff kind of started at the big four um, and it kind of just like followed me around from there because I always kind of do it in and out of each job and I think it's important to anyway. So uh, a lot of the internal audits we were doing uh, were for a lot of customers that came through into the technology risk side of the practice when we were there. So when I was at the big four, there was the business risk side and the tech risk side. And so the tech risk side, we would go in, you know, we'd agree with the customer, kind of talk through their business, talk through their processes, uh, talk through their current control environment, kind of what worries them, what they kind of think about on the weekends or at night, what they can't sleep because of and, identify the risks that they're facing within their industry as well. And then from there, we'd go in and we kind of make a little audit plan and we would audit them against the risks and the the controls that they say that they have and any controls that we would think they would need to have as per the industry, which could be anything from compliance, regulation, or just best practice as well so from any of the standards that are also out there. And then you kind of just audit them against that. And while you're auditing, you also get them to kind of walk through the process, the controls, and then they also have to prove it as well. So they have to provide some sort of evidence, mm-hmm. um, whether that's like a screenshot or show you any kind of email or anything else that's linked to that specific control. So would you say as a fundamental skill set into what we're going to get into in a second, do you think having that auditing background and that mindset has really helped driven some of the complexities that you deal with today in terms of the third party uh, vendor risk management side of things and what you're sort of doing even at UpGuard today? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, I think auditing is a very important skill to have for anybody, really, uh, because, you know, when you go into a job, when you go into a new job, and especially third party risk, like you are assessing the third parties of whether that's the company you're working with, the third parties they have, you're assessing them, or you're assessing customers' third parties for them, which is the case of what I do now and what a lot of the other consulting practices would do as well for their customers. So, you, you definitely need to be able to kind of take a step back, look at everything that they've provided you from whether they're answering a questionnaire or you're interviewing them or you're walking through processes with them. It's very much linked to the whole order process. So when you do receive something that's completed and additional documentation, you need to look through that. You need to pinpoint whether or not that's matching up with that expectation that you have against, let's say, for example, a standard like ISO 27001. So when you're looking through those controls, you want to make sure that they are actually doing what the control says to a certain degree with what you're comfortable with. And that kind of closely also links to risk appetite as well. And it's dependent on, I guess, now we're going into a bit of complexity with it, but 
the kind of the rating that the vendor has, whether they're a high, medium or low rated vendor. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of tied back to what that third party vendor is providing you or your customer as a service. I have to ask, mm. have you ever done an audit in terms of you've been working with a client and they've claimed or they've made sort of this statement that they have this particular security control in place and you've audited them and you said, well, actually you don't and it was completely falsified. Have you ever come across something like that? I have come across that a couple of times in my career. Um, so I've come across it while earlier on in my in my career when I was actually doing audit and I, I can't say I've come across it too many times r- right now presently mm-hmm. uh, because so in the past, like it's very easy for for, pe- for com- companies and people in certain roles to you know, kind of falsify or let's say uh, maybe pretty up something that, you know, they're trying to make it nice and shiny, but it's not really quite that shiny yet. And that's where, you know, your auditing skill of diving deep into something and asking the right questions. And like you said, like listening intently, taking it in and kind of watching their body language as well. So if you are in the same room as them, like it's very important to kind of watch what they're doing and, and how they're saying certain things. And I feel like all of that kind of that entire picture will give it away to you, whether they are telling the truth or lying. And then obviously the evidence that you collect will also show that. Uh, in those instances, like we we haven't had any super difficult customers or clients who have kind of pushed back on anything too much. If anything, a lot of the management, because you report to them in the end of the day in terms of what their control weaknesses are and if they've got any process failures, and it's more so they want to know what's actually going on or they already know there's an issue. They just needed the proof for it to then go and do something about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. So speaking of diving on deep, let's sort of, okay, so let's sort of get into the third party vendors side of thing. Now I'd like to sort of set the scene and if you could speak specifically on what are some examples of third party vendors. And now I ask this because I think some people may think that, it's only a IT service provider that could be a third party, but there's actually a lot more to it than that. So I just, I'd love for you to just gain some clarity on this for people who don't uh, know specifically on what those third party vendors actually look like. Yeah, of course. So third party vendors are pretty much anyone and and everyone that you would utilize outside of your company to, to either create, produce, or provide a product or service on behalf of your organization. So this could be, you know, short or long-term contractors. This could be, you know, call centers. So if you're externally sourcing the call center people and you're kind of outsourcing that to another company, uh, you've got, uh, you know, mortgage processes as an example. So you've got, you know, your brokers that you might deal with for a mortgage and they kind of outsource a lot of things and they, they get information from other places and they kind of do send your information everywhere else. So that's that's another third-party you know, you've got, uh, who else is there? There's like text banking, uh, text banking services. So, you know, all those texts that you might get to confirm certain payments as well, or, Mm -hmm. you know, texts that you get to confirm appointments. Like if you've got a beauty appointment, hair appointment, doctor's appointment. So all those types of things that you kind of see on a daily basis are provided by a third party. So it's where that person or organization has outsourced that service or utilizing a product to provide a service. So, this, yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate you giving clarity on what the types of those vendors look like. So let's talk about some of the risks then associated with third parties. Like, what do you think really worries you as an individual? Mm. 
I think for me as an individual, uh, what worries me the most is the information that we, that I even, and I'm sure this applies to so many people, um, that you freely kind of give away to different companies. And this can be via any kind of application you might use or have installed on your mobile phone, on your iPad, on your computers, laptops, um, you know, any services that you kind of key in your email or subscribe to. So all of that kind of stuff is, you know, we, we give out our information so freely and without even thinking that it does kind of freak me out and it does scare me a little bit because half of the time, um, you know, and I'm guilty of doing this, I, I sign up for something or I do something and it and it'll ask me for permissions to access my photos or videos or, you know, something else on my phone. And I kind of just click OK without taking a step back to think about it. And most of the time it's because, you know, I've got something in my head and I want to do that and I need it. So I'm going to do it and I'm accept, willing to accept that risk of handing over all my information. So for that, uh, I'd say, you know, my, my biggest scare are all those apps when you don't know how or who has created them and, you know, you don't know how secure they are most of the time. So that does worry me quite a lot personally. Uh, and then from a professional level, I would have to say, you know, there's a lot of risk associated with, with third parties and, and outsourcing services and products and all of that, you know, you need to really consider compliance risks. So that's massive, obviously, you know, we've got APRA here. Um, you've got other standards that you, you might have as part of your risk appetite that companies need to comply with, like ISO 27001, you know, you've got PCI DSS and a couple of others. Um, <clears throat> there's plenty of cybersecurity risk to think about. And that's kind of linked very closely to cloud risk and also, you know, data breach uh, and whether or not they've had one in the past and the likelihood of it occurring. And that's really dependent on the type of data they're going to collect if they are going to collect any and whether or not they're going to process it. So, um, you know, your reputation risk, credit risk, there's like a whole bunch of different types of risks that are faced by organisations uh, when it comes to third parties. So do you think it's a fair assumption to say that organizations wouldn't know all of their parties? Now, I ask this, you know, probably not in a small to medium-sized company, but definitely when you get up to a multinational and enterprise, I've worked in them myself, uh, as you're well aware of, there are teams of people that do exactly your type of function internally to audit external vendors and, and do assessments on vendors, and they have their own sort of a criteria that they, uh, they mark against those particular third parties and vendors. But would you still say that people, they're, they're utilising companies that in terms of across their organisation that other people don't know that they're utilising? Oh, 100%. So you see this all the time and I've seen it in the past uh, working at uh, various companies and especially really large companies like our big banks. So, you know, you have teams who will go out and they don't want to follow the normal procurement process. They don't want to ask IT if they can go and purchase this off-the-shelf product to use. So they'll just go and do it. And, you know, it, it's very worrying and, and you see it all the time. Like it's very hard for IT and also risk uh, to keep track of all of the different third parties for an organisation. So you also see this in government as well, which is quite an issue for them because, you know, these third parties half the time will have access and, you know, doors that are wide open for them to kind of come in, log in and, and use and take things and read, you know, the code and other things in their application, like information as they please. So, yes, I do agree. And we see it all the time. And we even see it with some of our customers to this day. So, uh, you know, they don't know who most of their third parties are. They know they, they have thousands, but they're unable to kind of pull them all into one place and understand the level of risk that comes with each of those third parties. 
How would you say companies today are sort of, so you're saying that, for example, people might have thousands of third-party vendors that they're leveraging. How would they go about uh, monitoring these types of third parties? And then I hate to say the word again, but auditing to see uh, in terms of like you just mentioned, if they've got access to something they shouldn't because they've got privileged information. How do you think companies are sort of managing it at the moment? So I think a lot of uh, companies do have some sort of register to go off um, because, you know, a lot of companies have like that spend threshold. If you spend over 10000 or 20000 you need additional sign-off and you need to follow a whole entire process. So for a lot of those, I think that sometimes the more money you do spend, the riskier it could be for that vendor. Uh, so for those ones, they generally do have a register and they have some sort of you know, evidence and proof that they exist and what they're using them for. It's the ones that are smaller uh, and those ones, unfortunately, they are very hard to track down. A lot of it would have to be, you know, quite a manual process. I know there are some automated tools out there, but the, some of those tools, the only things they'll really pick up is who is accessing what files and and which applications and all of that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, with you know, trying to find out which third parties, that's, that's quite tough to do. And generally it's a, it's a manual process, like I said, and you would need to spend time speaking with um, a lot of the teams and managers and just understanding kind of what they're using, um, whether or not they've registered it as part of the procurement process or with the IT team, if, if they do uh, need IT's help to keep it up to date and all of that. So um, it is a tough process to do, but I think you know, given our current compliance landscape, a lot of companies have kind of cleaned that up for themselves. And I think a lot of it also comes from, you know, a lot of companies have done and performed like a data mapping exercise. And as part of that exercise, they've been able to kind of track all of their, you know, confidential personal information that they held and kind of where they're sending it, where they're storing it, who's processing it for them. So that's that is a good exercise to use when you want to find out which third parties you're utilizing because at the end of the day, that information is, it's very important to you. So, and, and, you know, your crown jewel information, that's your corporate secret information. You really want to keep that nutted down. So that exercise really does help you try to figure out who has access to it and where it's going or if anyone has, you know, read access to it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's one thing I would strongly suggest performing. So you just touched on uh, regulation then and compliance. So do you, would you say that was the catalyst to people uh, being more compelled to take this more seriously? Because at the end of the day, as we know, in risk management and security and IT, everyone's to-do lists are never-ending, and it's like another thing that they have to now do. But because they're, their back's against the wall, they have to do it. Do you think because of compliance and regulation that it's made people – uh, a, more aware to the fact that they need to understand who their third parties are, but then also ensuring that they are compliant and they're, they're being held accountable now because of these uh, certain regulations that are out there. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, I know for a fact when I was uh, doing the consulting gig at the previous role, uh, you know, we had such a big influx of questions and requests to come in and help a lot of our clients back then to be in line with, you know, APRA's Prudential Standard CPS 234, which kind of caused quite a spin for everybody and kind of caused a little bit of a panic. And then you had, you know, the notifiable data breach regulation as well by the government. So a lot of these compliance requirements, obviously depending on which industry you're in and what you need to comply with, um, has definitely kind of given a bit of a kick to a lot of these organizations to get their ducks in line and to make sure that they understand 
every single avenue of risk that is presented to them as part of, you know, whether that's third party or their cybersecurity risk, which leads to, you know, their cybersecurity posture. And, you know, third parties, it's such a big part of that. So that's why, you know, you'll see a lot of the regulations now focusing on it because there never really has been a big enough focus on that when it comes to security. So you touched on certain industries uh, are more regulated than others. So as we know, finance, health, those sorts of things. What about those industries that fall outside of those buckets? Would you say that a lot of them have still got a lot of issues when it comes to security and potentially being breached because their backs aren't against the wall? They don't have to comply because they're not forced to because they're not in finance or they're not in health. So they kind of have a less compelling argument to go and spend more money with consultants to to go and do these types of these audits and and uh, monitoring type of functions. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So you know we see a lot now with some of our customers that we we do perform their assessments for them. Uh, we'll see that some of their vendors will be like, well, we don't need to comply with CPS two three four as an example. So you know we just do best practice and we align ourselves with uh, ISO twenty seven thousand and one as an example. So when it comes to that, you kind of need to to take a step back and and revisit that vendor in terms of what the risk rating is for that vendor. If something was to happen, if a data breach was to occur, would it would it really impact your business? Would it impact your organisation? And you need to kind of take into consideration, you know, all your reputation risk, op risk, financial risk. Um, you know, you've got your cybersecurity uh, risks with you know data leaks and all of that kind of stuff. So thinking about that rating of that vendor and whether or not it's worth doing business with them over the long run. So whether the, you know, the opportunity kind of outweighs the risk. So, you know, and that really comes down to organizations kind of looking at their vendors from a different lens and that will come. I think a lot of them are doing it now very slowly, especially our customers, a lot of them we're seeing. So they'll take the assessment and it'll, sometimes it'll take them back and they'll be like, wow, like I didn't realize they were, either that bad or that great. Um, and, you know, th- th- those vendors who who do say we're not going to comply or we're not going to align ourselves with X, Y, Z, uh, unfortunately, you will need to rethink the kind of business you're doing with them or the level of business you're doing with them. So kind of taking it a step back uh, and also renegotiating the contract terms. So that does also come into play in this whole process. Uh, Another thing is, you know, a lot of them do want to try and align themselves with some of these standards and regulations just because they are best practice. And a lot of them know that maybe majority, if not half of their revenue is coming from, uh, you know, certain industries that are highly regulated. So they will automatically try to align themselves or because they won't be able to become regulated by those bodies, they would just be able to align themselves with it and provide some sort of certification or audit report to prove that they are aligned with those uh, regulations. So when you hear a vendor say, oh, CPS 234, I'm not being highly regulated anyway, it doesn't really apply to me, what's sort of your response from that being a risk professional yourself? Yeah, so, you know, that that kind of commentary and that kind of attitude, it's disappointing to see and hear, especially, you know, given we're in 2020 now and, you know, cybersecurity is very important for every organisation and, you know, the risk that comes with it and doing business with many different vendors is is so high now. And, you know, when I hear that, it, it, it does disappoint me a lot. And it kind of says to me that they don't care. And, you know, it's not important to them. And 
that really, it worries me a lot. And, and, you know, normally when a vendor acts in that way and they're not responsible and they don't complete an assessment or complete a questionnaire or whichever way you're assessing them, they don't complete it properly or truthfully, the truth will always come out because, you know, when you do ask for evidence and things to back them up with that and you look at the contract and you ask for certain things that they're supposed to provide in that contract and they can't deliver, you then know that that's red flags right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as part of part of the assessments we do as well is we kind of go and check out whether there's been any data leaks out there um, for certain vendors. So, you know, if we do see anything or find anything, we do let our customers know. And then that's something for them to kind of talk to with the vendor. And that shows us immediate red flags, obviously, because they do have control breakdowns and they're not doing what they're saying that they're doing in the assessment. So I've worked in an organization before where we had a third party and part of Apparently, part of the contract was to say once per annum, we we as the company have the right to, uh, or I think it was we or an external had to pen test that particular organisation. They had to provide us with the report. Their pushback was, no, we're not going to do that. Um, we're going to pen test it ourselves, which completely defeats the whole purpose of it. Uh, what sort of response to something like that? Is that fairly common that you'd hear people sort of not wanting to participate in certain, uh, like you said, reports and to show that, I mean, the whole reason we we were trying to initiate that was to see if there was any vulnerabilities, anything that we should be aware of from an external perspective to ensure that we continue using these guys. Yeah. So, you know, those conversations and discussions are always really tough to have. And, you know, we, we have seen in the past where, you know, a lot of some vendors have said, oh, we don't want to do that, but we've done this already. And here's a completed copy of it. So please feel free to review that and then come back to us with any questions. Um, And, you know, we've had instances where they don't want to send certain reports or they don't want to send certain evidences. And I guess you can go and take it down the path of looking at the contract and pointing out, as you said, what they've said that they will provide annually. But if you don't have the correct wording in your contracts, uh, you can't, unfortunately, you cannot kind of force them on the word of the contract. But if they breach the contract and you've put in there that they need to, you're allowed to do a pen test on them once per year. Um, then you can actually dispute, stop the current product or service or whatever they're providing for you until such uh, activity is completed. The Mm -hmm. other way, I mean, that's one extreme, right? But then I think the other side of it is, you know, trying to work together to come to kind of like a mutual agreement would be, okay, yes, they want to do their own pen test. So maybe working together to find a reputable company who does pen testing that you kind of both agree on and then, you know, agreeing on kind of the scope, a high level scope maybe of the pen test uh, and coming to an agreement on that. And then they can kind of go ahead and continue along with the penetration test if they wish to do so. But I guess what comes with that is the cost element and whether or not they're going to pay for it or your organization is going to pay for it. So that's also something that would need to be nutted out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So let, let's go into details about uh, perhaps something that has gone wrong with the third party. And I think this is really important that I'm not sort of trying to position this in a negative light. I really want to position it as in positively and, and to get yourself to sort of answer some of the questions that people are likely to have. But I feel sometimes people are afraid to speak more openly about this stuff because they may feel it makes them look weak or vulnerable. And I think that sort of simulating this type of uh, situation would be highly beneficial to a lot of the listeners out there. So I'm really keen to sort of explore with you perhaps give me an example when something has gone wrong and then let's sort of like walk through what that looks like in detail. 
Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, recent, more recently, actually, and it's still kind of like an ongoing situation for one of our customers. Uh, we provide a managed service for them, so we look after their third-party uh, vendor risk management. So we do all of the assessments for them, and once we've finalised everything, we kind of hand it back to them, and then that's when they go and you know run it through their internal risk processes. So. For one of them, it's actually quite a big uh, vendor who you would think would be uh, a bit more, let's say, cooperative and mature with how they approach, uh, you know, performing certain tasks. And they completed the questionnaire uh, and that was fine. They sent it back um, and reading through their responses and reading through kind of what they've done and what they've left blank in that assessment was very interesting to see for me and it was very concerning uh, because you know they came back with a really really low score which was pretty much a fail they had a very very high number of risks which I found quite interesting because I was like surely this company you know they're quite large they wouldn't have you know such huge risks in their organization otherwise no one would do business with them and you know it came down to them not taking the assessment seriously not wanting to do it um, they've done so many of them already and the person who did it was very frustrated and, and quite angry. And so, you know, this is still kind of like a, a kind of situation that's working in progress with them. But what's happened is they have halted some of the services that this company provides to our customer and it's going through an internal review mm-hmm. and they're going kind of a little bit back and forth now with that vendor and it is very interesting and it's, it's quite disappointing uh, to see because, you know, you would expect some company of that size to be a bit more mature and appropriate with how they handle these situations. So why do you think they're not being mature and appropriate towards this particular situation or perhaps others that are out there as well? Yeah, so I think what's happened is, you know, as you know, like for a lot of these companies, you've got a lot of the regulations and a lot of legal and, and government requirements that they need to assess all of their third parties by a certain date. So because of the short period of time, and I imagine that they have other customers um, also sending them all of these types of questionnaires, surveys um, and assessments to complete, they've gotten frustrated. And I imagine it's a resource issue uh, because they've only got a few people over there who kind of look after this and it's only mm-hmm. one fraction of their job so I think what's happened is they've you know they've just gotten pissed off they've gotten pretty angry and they're just like eh, stuff this I don't want to do this so I'm just going to do it like however I like and mm-hmm. you know it's not essentially yes that person is at fault to a certain degree but it also brings to light what a lot of organizations face and that's resourcing issues and not knowing how to properly handle or having a proper process for third-party risk management. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So because of this company has behaved in a certain way that you don't agree with, what type of implications has that sort of created for this particular organisation that are going through this review process, have potentially stopped their services? What does that sort of look like? So I think it it does look quite bad for them. And and I think they're quite lucky that, you know, the customer isn't making this more public or, you know, taking it a little further than what they already have. They're kind of actually working really well together with them trying to come to a mutual agreement. And like, I I just think that, you know, this makes them look really bad because the customer is now kind of thinking, do we want to re-sign our contract with them in the future Mm -hmm. when it comes to renewal? 
and you know they're already thinking about uh, making changes to the contract in terms of the terms and conditions of it and the level of service that they're providing. So I think they're already starting to think about moving away from them, uh, regardless of whether or not this gets um, fixed up and you know solution comes to play here. Uh, I think it's just kind of tarnished their reputation a little bit with the way that they've reacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, especially with no one else kind of reviewing or having a look over this questionnaire before it was submitted. So when a situation like this goes a little sour, yeah. what what do sort of the relationships look like after an incident like this with a particular vendor occurs? Like what is likely to sort of happen? I think in this case it, it will be interesting to see what happens with them, but Speaking with, you know, our main contact there who we provide the reports to and all of that, you know, they've kind of said that this is really poor form on the vendor's half because, you know, they do pay them quite a large amount of money as well. So they are kind of looking over their contract and they've gotten a fair few different people involved from their organisation, including legal, and they're just trying to work out the best way to go about it for the moment. Uh, And then I think in the future, they've just they're kind of rethinking of which direction to go with them. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if it will end mutually or not. I'm not sure how they will go about that. But I personally think that once, you know, a vendor makes that kind of mistake with such a large customer, uh, then, you know, it kind of does ra- raise some flags that they need to do some epic process changes and mm-hmm. some new resource allocation because uh, it, it's not it's not fair and it's not right because you kind of, you are damaging, you know, your your revenue stream and, mm-hmm. and your sales, you know, to have such a big name on your portfolio and then for them to kind of go missing is is not, it's not very good. So one of the things I'm sort of gathering as you talk through this is that it's likely that the guys internally with the client will probably be uh, reviewing the contract and then adding in more terms and conditions in conjunction with their legal team. What do you think in these types of scenarios, what is sort of the learning that happens because of this? And as you as you alluded to before around loss of revenues, it's sort of that retrospectively, oh, we should have just fixed a whole bunch of that stuff because now we've lost our biggest customer. Is that sort of some of the, the thought processes that happen when these types of things occur, unfortunately? Yeah, so I think, yeah, unfortunately that that is it. And not only that, but like a lot of these old contracts don't actually have more of the current um, you know, terms and conditions that new contracts have, especially around, you know, things with data. So personally identifiable information, the handling of that, um, the handling of breaches and information security incidents and, you know, the level of access to the information that they're holding. So kind of all of that is it will get kind of added into the contract to a certain extent and that'll come with, you know, them being able to do an audit maybe uh, once a year with a certain X amount of days that they need to give them notice with um, and probably some reporting as well on their security uh, and, you know, access reviews as well to the data or the information that they're handling. So all of this will get added into the contract and, you know, what will also come with that is the report that we provided them. We did highlight some other risks which were a little bit concerning. They weren't as high or extreme as some others, but, you know, they are kind of the foundations of certain controls and processes that you should have in place. So they will probably bring to light a lot of the issues that did come up from the report. And that does include some of the stuff that was found with the data leaks assessment. So they will talk to them about that and probably add 
certain terms into the contract to make sure that they are complying with mm-hmm. those certain controls, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what I'd like to sort of talk about now with you is talking about the automation side of things when it comes to vendor risk management. Now, I know that we all know that there's a lot of false positives when it comes to, to stuff like this in terms of monitoring, but can you provide a, a clear insight to how this would kind of work? Yeah, of course. So, you know, you can automate your vendor risk management program. Unfortunately, you probably won't be automating the entire program because you still need an element of, you know, humanness to it where you need to review what's come back and you need to make a judgment whether or not, you know, the company is willing to accept certain risks or they want to progress with asking for remediation for certain risks that they found as part of the assessment. So, what we do is we we do have an automated process and you'll find a lot of other companies that do provide these services as well, where, you know, you, you have this soft, particular software and you add in the vendor that you want to uh, kind of track and trace and assess. And, you know, what's good with automating is you get an ongoing kind of uh, assessment process based on their, you know, their web footprint, which is live. And, you know, it's their public web footprint. So you can scan for as long as you want and, you know, you get a specific score kind of out to you and that gives you, you know, rough, a rough place of where this vendor is sitting and how many risks they currently have uh, open. And, you know, our our software, which is, is, is great, where it gives you kind of the outline of all of the risks and what which risks and checks that they've passed, which ones they've failed. And, you know, it's, it's important that when you are automating as well that, you don't just want to see the things that they're all doing wrong and that's where you stop. You want to see how they would be able to remediate these risks and fix them and giving some pointers and tips and also comparing it to the industry averages as well. Uh, so, And you want to be able to benchmark them across your other vendors that you have uh, and maybe in that same industry uh, as well. So when you do automate, you also want to make sure that when you do send, you know, a questionnaire or an assessment that you're able to track and trace that all through kind of one tool. Uh, and I think a lot of companies struggle with that at the moment because they are performing a lot of these manually. So you will see a lot of Excel spreadsheets flying around, mm-hmm. maybe Word documents. And then as they're communicating with their vendors, they're kind of, they're doing that through email. So they're easily losing sight of, you know, how many times they've contacted them what they've asked them, um, you know, like how many more times they need to follow up before they need to have a phone call or bring the contracts team into it or whatever else they need to do. So when you do automate it, it's, it's great because you've got all of that in the one place and you don't have to go searching for these things. So, you know, it's all, you've got your audit trail, you've got your timelines of when you've sent to, you can set reminders. So it kind of removes all of that manual processing for you and mm-hmm. it makes it a lot easier and it kind of cuts your time in half that you spend on each vendor. And that means you can cover more vendors as part of your vendor risk management program. And it doesn't mean that you're fully automating it where you don't need human um, interaction with it. You still need the human element because you still need to be able to make that judgment call of whether or not, you know, you're willing to accept these vendors for how they are or if you need to request for certain remediation uh, with the vendor for some of the risks that they have because it's in breach of contract or it's just in breach of a you know regulation or a certain standard that you're following with them. So, you know, when you do automate, that remediation process also sits within within that tool as well. So it's kind of all in one place and you can track and go as as, as you please. 
Okay, so I'm a company. I have 500 vendors. Well, I know I have 500 vendors, to be clear. Yes. Uh, I bring you guys in from UpGuard. You would have continuous monitoring on all of those vendors. Yes. And then would I, just say I'm the risk manager, would I then go into your portal, log in, and to be able to see those assessments in terms of how they're sort of taking place, like you mentioned before? Yes. Uh, and would you guys have capability to send automated reports? So if I needed to check weekly around what was sort of happening, would you guys automate that too to see where things are sort of sitting? Yeah. So yeah, we could, we can definitely do that. Um, you know, you do receive notifications as well. Like if a vendor score drops, you know, by a hundred points or 50 points, um, and new risks are introduced, you get notifications on that straight away. Um, on the assessment process as well, once a questionnaire is completed and submitted, you receive notifications about that. Um, and when an assessment is completed and published, so, you know, you can receive weekly updates, um, weekly uh, reports, sorry, or you can, log in and do it yourself. Uh, it's, it's not difficult as well uh, at all. It's very easy to read, very easy to follow. Um, and, you know, there are summaries and dashboards which are customizable. So you can add which vendors you want to track in that as you please. Uh, and, you know, you can add competitors in as well and track them. So it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, and, you know, everything is in one place, which makes it extremely easy, um, especially when it comes to auditing time. Uh, with the regulators, if you are being regulated by any of them. Would you say that a lot of the issues that have arisen, traditionally speaking, has been because, like you said, it's been very piecemeal, Word docs, Excel spreadsheets, someone's at the organisation, someone can't find that Excel spreadsheet that's buried somewhere. And then, uh, like you mentioned before, that um, people tend to just do whatever they want. So would you say that because there's been so much disparity across a company and not a lot of unification would you say that's why there's a lot of issues that people would have traditionally but now we're sort of moving into a time where companies like yourself uh, in terms of upguard are help centralizing that process to ensure that things don't go by the wayside yeah 100 percent. so you know i've seen it in my previous roles uh you know when you when you're trying to help a customer get their ducks in line with third-party risk management and they don't know where half the things are and, you know, a lot of people will, you know, as you know, you see all the time people saving things to their own, their, their computers and they're updating documents as they go from their desktop, which is not best practice, but a lot of organisations allow it and a lot of people do it. And so then that, you know, immediately gets removed from whatever drive it's sitting in that that's the central kind of location to store these documents. And then immediately you you lose that. You, you lose it, you don't know where it is, you lose the versions. And like you said, when people leave, um, they don't hand over the process. And a lot of the time people are kind of, the, the process that they've matured or, or kind of gotten down pat is in their head. And, you know, it's how they do it in their mind and they don't really write it down and it's not really anywhere else for someone else to come and pick it up and be able to run with it. So you do run like quite a few risks there. And a lot of mm -hmm. the time they have to start from scratch, which is not ideal, but if you are following that manual process, unfortunately, that that's what happens and you, it takes you a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, these automation automated tools, which, you know, you said centralize and make it a lot easier, like what we provide, um, you know, not only does it make it easier for an organization to assess their vendors, but also it makes the vendor's life a little bit easier as well, because they don't have to worry about this Excel spreadsheet getting, you know, sent around through email, which may or may not be secure, and also various copies of them flying around in their organisation because they're passing it to every Tom, Dick and Harry in different teams to complete it 
and then you've got to kind of put everything into one version. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the version yeah. controlling is a lot better and, and easier as well. So oh my God, I feel stressed listening to process. this. <laughs> Would you also say, because you guys are cloud-based as well, I mean, I've been having a lot of conversations around cloud and SaaS yeah. and these types of things. It's just easier because, I mean, if if I'm so-and-so uh, working in an office and I'm responsible for the spreadsheet that gets sent around to every every man and his dog in the company, then I've somewhat lost it in the version control and I can't roll it back to 10 versions ago because I've lost the last 10 as well. Yep. I would say it just makes it a lot easier because I can access that when I'm at home as well. Like I don't need to then physically be in the office or if, if I'm trying to remote in through some VPN that doesn't work and the whole thing's being slowed down because everyone is trying to do the same thing. What are you sort of seeing in terms of future state? Is this going to be a thing that just happens? I mean, I've been speaking to a lot of people on and off the podcast about cloud adoption and, and SaaS and being very fluid in how we operate our businesses, whether it's in the office, at home or on a beach somewhere. What do you sort of see the future of that looking like? Will people just have to adopt to this way of operating? And if they don't, then they're going to have a lot of problems? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think it's not only problems in terms of, you know, their processing and, you know, keeping everything in one place, but, you know, SaaS is easy, right? It's easier than going and purchasing some fancy schmancy product out of a box, which then you need about 50 people from the company to come in for two weeks and try to make it fit into your organization and changing all these different little, you know, like codes and how a certain screen looks and all of that crap. So like, it's just, it's easy. It's simple. You know, it doesn't need to be installed. You don't need to worry about any of that. You don't need to worry about it protruding your network and sitting on a certain server that you, you have your crown jewels in as well. You know, like it's, it's so easy. You log in, you know, you can have single sign-on setup. It integrates with other applications and other systems you're using in-house, like, you know, your help desk stuff or your risk management software. So it, it's just simple and it doesn't require a large amount of effort from the point that you purchase the product to when you use the product. It is so slimlined. It is so easy. Like, as you know, you know, when you log into Google and you want to sign up as a customer, it doesn't take two weeks to, to you know, get started with them. It's so quick. You sign up, you log in, you're done. You just got to set up your users. You put in, you know, you punch in whatever you want to put in there and and you're set to go. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's what we're kind of aiming at here by being a SaaS provider is we're so simple. Like once you, you do your trial, like you've already technically you've set up your account um, and it's just once you decide to go ahead, that becomes your account and you've already done all the hard work from your trial in terms of setting up your vendors, your labeling and all of that kind of stuff. So it, it's easy. And I think that's what a lot of our customers love about it. And mm-hmm. it's nice to look at. It's easy to use and gives you what you need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I 100%. I totally agree. Yeah. So Tulin, I really appreciate your time today and your knowledge and your insight. And I think this is definitely a very big area and topic of conversation. And I definitely want to get you on here to really shed some insight on these questions that I believe a lot of people are asking out there. So if people are wanting to ask you a question, perhaps that I didn't ask you myself, how can they go about doing that? So, yeah, for sure. Like go ahead and contact me through LinkedIn. Uh, You know, I'm on there quite a bit. Add me through there and send me a, a personal message. Uh, and you know we can go from there whether that's a discussion we have over the phone or a coffee or something I'm more than happy to help and answer uh, any questions people may have in relation to vendor risk management because there's never one way that you know fits all that for everyone to do so everyone's approaches and processes are different and yeah I would love to know and I would love to help where possible. 
Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Julian. I really, really do appreciate your time. And I'm sure our listeners have gained a lot of insight from this conversation. So thanks again. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.